And as you're turning there, I want to remind you of a well-known story that is known as the appointment in Samara. This is an ancient Mesopotamian tale that I'm sure you are familiar with. One version of the story goes like this. There was a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to market to buy provisions. After some time, the servant came back white and trembling and said, Master, just now, when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd. And when I turned, I saw it was death that jostled me. She looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Now, lend me your horse, and I will ride away from this city and avoid my fate. I will go to Samara, and there death will not find me. The merchant lent him his horse, and the servant mounted it, and he dug his spurs in its flanks, and as fast as the horse could gallop, he went. Then the merchant went down to the marketplace, and he saw death standing in the crowd, and he came near to her and said, Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? That was not a threatening gesture, she said. It was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I had an appointment with him tonight in Samara. Just like the servant in this story, we sometimes are guilty of making absolute statements about our future plans. Supposing that we are capable of controlling our own destinies. But whereas the servant was subject to death and her plans for his life, in an even greater way, we are subject to God and his sovereign plan for our lives. In the passage before us today, James warns us about the problem of presumptuous planning. We commit this sin when we make unwarranted claims about the future and our plans for it and leave God and his will out of the picture. What James says in this section flows right out of the previous two verses. In verses 11 and 12, James condemns speaking presumptuously about others. And in verses 13 through 17, he condemns speaking presumptuously about ourselves. In the former case, we usurp the role of God and presume to know about someone else's spiritual destiny. And in the latter case, we assume the role of God and presume to know about our own physical destiny. But James condemns both forms of presumption. We do not know enough about another person's life to speak harshly against them. And we do not know enough about our own lives to speak about our future plans with certainty. Because of our penchant for presumption, how can we ensure that we acknowledge God in the formulation of our plans for the future? More to the point, how can we avoid the problem of presumptuous planning this year? There are three specific ways. First, we must not forget 
our ignorance. Notice what James says in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. James begins this section with an unusual expression. Come now. This is only used by James in one other place, chapter 5, verse 1. It essentially means, look here or listen up. He uses it to call out an imaginary group of individuals who are intent on running their own lives, independent of God's control. These people assume that they are able to control the events of their lives, and they make plans accordingly. Of course, it is true that all of us have the ability to control some things in our lives. Otherwise, God would not hold us accountable for how we use our time and efforts. We are all given a, a level of responsibility in this life, and we are expected to live in accordance with that. But we do not have ultimate control of our lives. The people James addresses here imagine that they are in absolute control of their lives. This is why they speak with such certainty. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. This is a dogmatic assertion. They do not say we might go or we hopefully will go, but we will go. There is no plan B here, only plan A. They leave no room for contingencies. This plan assumes perfect knowledge of the future and presumes absolute control of events. Because of their overconfidence, there are several false assumptions that these merchants make. One, they assume that they have ultimate control of their time, when they will do something. They assert today or tomorrow we will go and spend a year. These merchants suppose that they have full control over their schedules, the appointments that they make, how they will use their time, how long they will take to do something, and they imagine full control not only of the present, but also of the future. Two, they suppose that they have ultimate control of their travel, where they will go. They say, we will go to such and such a city. James offers a, a fill-in-the-blank here and allows for the widest possible application. Such, an, such a city can mean any city. Take your pick. Athens, Jerusalem, Rome. To these people, the, the specific place matters very little because they think they have control wherever they go. Finally, they also think that they have ultimate control of their trade, what they will do. They confidently declare, we will trade and make a profit. These people have it all figured out. They have control of their expenses. They have control of their income. On top of this, they even think that they have control of the market itself and their actual ability to make money. Taking all their words together, 
these people are guilty of presumptuous planning. You see, the problem is not that they are making plans for the future. This is a, a good and necessary thing to do, especially for a businessman. In fact, the Bible actually commends wise planning for the future. For example, in Luke chapter 14, verse, verses 29 through 32, Jesus tells a parable in which a, a builder is commended because of the preparations that he made for a future building project. This, this indicates that thinking about and preparing for the future is not necessarily a bad thing. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on the book of James, puts his finger on the real problem when he writes, James is not rebuking these merchants for their plans or even for their desire to make a profit. He rebukes them rather for the this worldly self-confidence that they exhibit in pursuing these goals. A danger, it must be said, to which business people are particularly susceptible. And we should guard here against another kind of misinterpretation. That James is forbidding Christians from all forms of planning or of concern for the future. Taking out life insurance and saving for retirement, for instance, are not condemned by James. These may very well be a form of wise stewardship. What James rebukes here is any kind of planning for the future that stems from human arrogance and our ability to determine the course of future events. End of quote. Because of this, James sets these overconfident merchants straight and says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You have no idea what tomorrow holds. There are any number of things that could transpire and interrupt your plans. In the ancient world, there were, there were all kinds of possibilities. They could contract some terrible illness and be bedridden for a time. They could get attacked by robbers on their way to another city and lose all of their money. War could break out between their country and another one, resulting in the destruction of their city, the loss of their income, and possibly even the loss of their own lives. These people were banking on a future that they could not see nor determine. Aren't they just like us? Oh, we may be a little more conscientious in our approach to the future, but how often do we make plans for something under the assumption that we are guaranteed tomorrow? As I said at the outset, I had plans to preach here two weeks ago, but then was sidelined because the sudden death of my father-in-law. My family, my family and I had plans to enjoy our vacation with the entire family, but instead we were unexpectedly forced to mourn with each other over the loss of one very dear family member. None of us can predict the future. So why do we often make plans as if we could. The truth is, friends, that we are terrible predictors of the future. Time magazine a couple of years ago 
featured an article that cataloged the top 10 end-of-the-world prophecies that failed to come true. One of the most famous was made by Edgar Wisenot in his 1988 book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. The book sold some 4.5 million copies. After publication, the author famously and arrogantly stated, only if the Bible is an error am I wrong. Not surprisingly, 1989 eventually rolled around with Wisenot's prediction left unfulfilled. Realizing that he was wrong, the author quickly published another book, 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1989. For some reason, that one did not sell as well. If we cannot make accurate predictions about the most significant event of the future, the return of Christ, then we certainly cannot make precise predictions about the less significant events of our lives. Because we are finite and fallen creatures, we cannot see down the corridors of time and thus are not in any place to make dogmatic assertions about what the future may or may not hold. We do not even know what is going to happen one minute from now, let alone one year. It's easy to to bank on the principle of uniformity, that just because things have always been this way, that they will stay that way and make plans in accordance with that. But the reality is that we have absolutely no guarantee of tomorrow. This is why Proverbs 27 verse 1 says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Think back over the course of your life for just a moment. Did you think 10 years ago that you would be here? Did you think five years ago that you'd be doing what you are now? Try as we might, none of us can peer into the future of our own personal lives and see how things will unfold. We are not ultimately in control of our lives, nor of the future. And therefore, we should not engage in presumptuous planning. So the first way to correct the problem of presumptuous planning is to remember our ignorance. And the second way that we can avoid the problem of presumptuous planning is that we must not forget life's transience. Transience just means fleeting or, or passing quickly. James says at the end of verse 13, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. When it comes to formulating our future endeavors. We must take the shortness of life into account. The shortness of James's question, what is your life, is meant to point us to contemplate the shortness of our existence on this earth. He says that our lives are just a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes away. 
The word mist is, is found in only one other place in the New Testament, and it, it can mean vapor or even smoke from a fire. Just like the mist from a waterfall appears for a moment and then quickly fades away, so we are on this earth for only a brief time, and then we pass away. We typically do not like to talk about death, but sometimes we are forced to do so. A man went in for his annual checkup and received a phone call from his physician a couple of days later. The doctor said, I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. What's the news? The man asked. Well, you have only 48 hours left to live. That is bad news, said the shocked patient. But I'm afraid I have even worse news, the doctor continued. What could be worse than what you've already told me, asked the patient, to which the doctor replied, I've been trying to call you since yesterday. Well, we may not have only a day left to live. We all have only a short time on this earth. The Bible speaks of the shortness of our lives in several places. David prays in Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5, Lord, make me to know my end and, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Moses writes in Psalm 90, verses 10 through 12, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or, if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days, that we may present before you a heart of wisdom. And Psalm 103, verses 15 through 16 says, As for man... His days are like grass. As a, a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the, the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on the shortness of our lives, said, Here is the history of grass. It's sown, grown, mown, blown, and then it's gone. And the history of crass, history of man rather, is not much more. How true it is that we are here today and gone tomorrow. This reminds me of a well-known poem by Henry Twells that says, When as a child I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth I waxed more bold, time strolled. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. When older still I daily grew, time flew. Soon I shall find, in passing on, time gone. Is that not your experience? I'm not that old, but at 33 I can testify to the rapid passing of time. Feels like just yesterday I was playing Little League in Oregon. Feels like just last week I was playing the drums with my high school rock band. Time flies by. I feel like 
Every child has accelerated life's time scale. It's hard to believe that my little Anna Rose is seven years old. Soon she will be 19. Time is a precious thing, friends, but it flies by. Only one life, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Because of this, we need to come to grips with our mortality. Unless the Lord returns, we all have an appointment in Samara. Hebrews 9.25 says, It is appointed to man once to die, and then comes the judgment. In light of this, someone has said, if we want to make our days count, then we need to count our days. Did you get that? How can we do this? How can we number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom? Personally, I have found great help in learning from the example of Jonathan Edwards. Edwards, the the famous pastor of the Great Awakening, was a man who, who thought a lot about the day of his death, and he lived a more productive life as a result. When he was 19 years old, 19, he penned a, a series of resolutions, which have come to be known as his 70 resolutions. These pledges, which he made to himself, were to, to guide the course of his life. He would read over these resolutions once a week for the rest of his life. Now listen to a few of these. Number five, resolved. Never to lose one moment of time but improve it to the most profitable way I possibly can. Number seven, resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number nine, resolved, to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. One writer says, Edwards chose to live his life in such a way that he was preoccupied not with the visible, but with the invisible. Not with the temporal, but with the eternal. Not with the earthly, but with the heavenly. He wanted his life to count to the maximum for God. And I pray that, that we too might have this same desire to such an extent that we might manage our minutes and sequester our seconds all to the glory of God. My father-in-law was a man like Jonathan Edwards. He too lived his life in light of eternity. He lived every day as if it was his last day. And and the godly legacy that that he left behind testifies to his understanding of the brevity of life. He did not know how long that he he had on this earth. And so he, he wanted to make every moment count. Consequently, he devoted himself to sharing the gospel with others, spending time with his family, and studying God's word. My father-in-law 
was a man who did not waste his time. And therefore, he did not waste his life. He leveraged every second to loving God and loving people. One of the lessons that I have learned from Ron's untimely death and the legacy that he left behind is that we have no guarantee of tomorrow. And so it, it behooves me and it behooves you to live for Christ while there is still time. I know that there may be some in this room who are terrified at the prospect of death. You may be here today and you're, you're uncertain about what happens after death. Maybe you don't consider yourself to be a Christian. Maybe you don't understand what the gospel is all about. But I want you to know how this study applies to your life today. The bad news of this life is that we are all sinners who have broken God's law. And as a result, we are subject to death and deserve God's righteous condemnation. But the good news is, my friend, that God so loved us that he sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth to die on the cross in our place. He bore our punishment. And because he died and, and rose again, he conquered sin. He overcame death. He defeated the devil, and he guarantees eternal life to all who believe. Because of what Christ has done, if you believe in him, you can be confident that your sins are forgiven, and you can have the hope of eternal life. Death will not have the last say over your life. Just like Jesus died and rose again, all who trust in him will one day experience the resurrection and never be subject to the power of death again. But listen, time is short, friends. You must believe in Jesus Christ, in this life, in order to experience the resurrection and the next life. This is why the Bible says today, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week. Today, we must trust Christ. And when we do this, we have no reason to be afraid of death because it is a defeated enemy. And it will one day be overwhelmed by the resurrection power of Christ. It is this truth that can give us confidence when we think about the prospect of death. Those who, who live in light of eternity, people like Edwards, people like my father-in-law, are not alarmed by life's transience. Rather, they are motivated by it to live for Christ and to pursue eternally worthwhile endeavors. In order to guard against the problem of presumptuous planning, we must not forget our ignorance. We must not forget life's transience. And now finally, we also must not forget God's providence. Verses 15 and 16 say, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, 
we will live and do this or that. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is what? Evil. Fundamentally, our lives are under God's sovereign control and direction. While we are responsible creatures, accountable to God for how we live, He is sovereign over every part of our existence. The Bible teaches that God is intricately, exhaustively, minutely, comprehensively, fully, and meticulously sovereign over everything in this universe. Not one thing happens apart from his perfect determination and all-wise plan. The Bible teaches that not only does God know all things, but he also controls all things. Notice what God says in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Everything in this world is subject to the sovereign will of God. Psalm 37 verse 23 says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. Proverbs 16 verse 1 says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 19, verse 21 says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Proverbs 20, verse 24 says, Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? Jeremiah 10, 23 says, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. You get the point here, don't you? God is sovereign over our lives. And because of this, we should be very careful how we think about our own plans for the future, and we should be careful about how we speak about them as well. James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Whether we like it or not, it's not ultimately up to us what happens in this life. We do not run the show. The world does not revolve around us. Our plans are subject to God's plans. Our wills are dependent upon God's sovereign will, and our lives are in His loving hands. I do not remember a lot about my grandfather. He died when I was very young. But I do distinctly, distinctly remember that, that he often would say the words, Lord willing. I would ask him, Grandpa, are we going fishing today? Lord willing. Are we going to be leaving soon? 
Lord willing, he would say. Even as a young boy, I came to realize that my grandfather believed in the sovereignty of God. And he knew that all of his plans were subject to God's plans. Because of his example, I've gotten into the habit over the years of saying, Lord willing, I will do this or that. Throughout his writings, the Apostle Paul also used this expression to indicate his awareness of God's control of his life. For example, in Acts 18, verse 21, after leaving Ephesus, he said, I will return to you again if God wills. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19, he writes, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7, he says, For I do, not want, I do not want to see you now only in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. What do your words reveal about your view of God's sovereign control of your life? Young people, when you think about the future and all the, the possibilities that it holds, do you leave room for God and His will? As you, as you plan for college, have you taken the time to consider whether or not God wants you there at that place? Do you make decisions about a, a possible career path? Have you included God in the process? What would He have you pursue? Have you, have you sought the counsel of your parents and, and other godly individuals? Parents, what about your wonderful plan for your kids. Listen, we all want our kids to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Why wouldn't we? But more than this, shouldn't we want them to be godly? Do we prioritize church attendance over school and community activities? Do, do we plan to gather once a night for family worship, to, to hear God's word read, to sing a hymn, to, to pray together. In order to, to demonstrate to our children the priority of spending time with God. For those who are retired or are nearing retirement, do you realize that your time belongs to God? You may have the freedom and the privilege of enjoying retirement, but are you sensitive to God's will for your life? He may be, be calling you away from your career so that you can serve Him in a way that you never expected. He wants you to use your retirement for His glory, for the advance of His kingdom and for the service of his people. For all of us here, think about the way the truth of God's sovereignty impacts how we pray. I know this week in particular, you've devoted some time to focusing on the topic of prayer. 
do you realize that the very act of prayer itself reveals whether or not we believe in God's sovereign control of our lives? Since our, our lives are under His sovereign control, should we not seek Him for every decision? Should we not pray before every meal, before every trip, before we, we go to sleep at night and before we head to work in the morning? And when we do pray, do we ask God to accomplish His perfect will in the world and in our own lives? As we learned last week from, from Josh, do we pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is certainly good and right for us to ask for healing, to, to plead for deliverance, to, to pray for protection. But do we also say, humbly, may your will be done. This is not some magical formula, friends, but an honest admission that we are not in ultimate control of our lives. If we, if we really believe that God is in control of all things, including our future, our lives, and our plans as well, then our words should reflect our convictions. James says that when we omit God from our thinking about the future, we are prone to speak in pride. He says at the end of verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. When we fail to acknowledge God in our plans for the future, we delve into practical atheism. We act as if God does not exist, that he's not in control. You see, that the fundamental sin behind the problem of presumptuous planning is pride. The essence of pride is summed up in the words of the famous poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. The last stanza of that poem says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Pride is a consistent theme throughout this fourth chapter of James. Back in verse 6, notice he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in verse 10, he concludes, Therefore, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Just as pride is the ugly sin behind the church conflicts mentioned in verses 1 through 10. Just as pride is the ugly sin behind slander in verses 11 and 12, so pride is the ugly sin behind ignoring the will of God for our lives in verses 15 and 16. James concludes this section of Scripture with one of the most convicting verses in the Bible. Notice verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news this morning, but before you listen to this sermon, you may have been unaware of the problem of presumptuous planning. But now, at the end of this, you are accountable for what you have heard. You now know what you ought to do. And if you leave here this morning and, and you forget about your own ignorance, life's transience, and God's providence, then you sin against the Lord. And, and your sin is not a trifle. In verse 16, James calls it evil. Presumptuous planning, living, thinking, and speaking as if God does not exist is evil. Listen, there is no such thing as a small sin. All sin is, as R.C. Sproul has rightly said, cosmic treason. When we fail to do what God has told us to do, we deeply displease the Lord. I close with this. Jesus told the parable in Luke Chapter 12, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God, but God, but God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And the things you are prepared, whose will they be? Because he arrogantly presumed upon the future, this man was proven to be a fool. And to ensure that we are not just like him, we must avoid the problem of presumptuous planning. Therefore, we must not forget about our ignorance. We must not forget about life's transience. And most importantly, we must not forget about God's providence. Pray with, pray with me, would you? Oh God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Make us aware of our frailty and help us live in light of eternity. May your will be done in our lives. We ask this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.